Exodus 34 and John chapter 1. You recall, toward the end of Exodus 33, that Moses cried out, Please show me your glory. It is the heart cry of all the people of God who have the Holy Spirit within them. Please show me your glory. In Exodus 34, we have the Lord's response. It took place on the following day when Moses ascended Mount Sinai again. God came down to him, had him placed in the cleft of the rock, covered him there with his hand. And Moses was allowed not to see the face of God, but to see his back. The Lord descended, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I don't know all of you very well. I know... Um, I know most of you pretty well, but I guess with you know a few, I would be uh, more acquaintances uh, than anything. But I do know this about you. No matter how much I know of you, I know that you love glory. I know that you love awesome. What I really want to ask you what I really want to get at today is where will you go to satisfy your glory hunger and quench your glory thirst? Because every human being longs for glory. Every human being longs to see awesome. We long to see it. We long to applaud it. We long to be witnesses of it. And there are so many examples that I could draw from to to show this. I don't think I really probably have to make a case I think you probably just know it in your own heart and from your own experience yourself. But uh, from my own life, you know, I've loved sports, watched sports for a long, long time. And like any sports fan, I love a good highlight reel package. I remember when I was a kid watching this, this play that Ozzie Smith made when he was the shortstop for the San Diego Padres. Back in 1978, he made this play that, I was watching this video that had been made in 1992, and they were doing that year's highlights, but had to include this play Ozzie Smith made. There was a ground ball hit to his left. He charged it. He, he had to dive headlong to his left, but as he dove in midair, the ball hit a pebble in front of him and careened to his right. So his left hand is outstretched to make the catch, but he reaches back with his right bare hand, catches the ball as he's diving in midair, 
hits the ground, gets up and throws a bullet to first to nab the runner. And it's just, wow. Let's rewind that and watch it again. Let's use this remote control to make that go in slow motion. I want to see it again and again. We love these, these displays of excellence, of beauty. So like any semi-regular sports fan, I've seen the adulations and the worship words that we give, that we pour out on athletes. Think of any time that, and some of you might not have any interest in sports whatsoever, so maybe these names don't mean anything to you, but any time that LeBron James is on the basketball court, or Usain Bolt is on the track, or Michael Phelps is in the pool, the, the commentators, even if they're having an off night, go crazy. All of the attention, they, they'll steal all the attention away from the other athletes, and we heap on them words that sound like worship. Theirs is the power and glory and kingdom, is what it sounds like. We are worshipers through and through. We love glory. We love awesome displays. And it's because we were created by God that we love awesome displays. We enjoy beauty and elite performances, whether we're talking about in athletics or art or anything like that. But it's because of the fall that our adulations and our enjoyment and our expressions of wonder terminate on the athletes and the actors and the artists and the Apple executives, if you know what I mean, instead of on the true God. We terminate our praises because of the fall on the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, who has said, who has said, my glory I will not give to another. So what glory satisfies your glory hunger? What glory quenches your glory thirst? What or to whom do you ascribe awesome to? I know you seek glory because you're a human being. But where? Where do you seek glory? Isn't it amazing that we heap all these terms of glory and we heap all these adulations on people who don't know us and don't want to know us. They, they wouldn't care if we didn't even exist. And yet we heap our praises on them. I want you to know that the God of glory wants you to know Him. And He wants to know you. And He gave up the Son of His love so that you might be reconciled into that relationship that is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom whom He has sent. So what are we doing? I, I enjoy sports. I love watching sports. I love watching the highlights and so on. Slow motion, my girls just don't understand when it's one replay after another. We just saw this. So it's from a different angle. We just saw this. You know, ten times over they do this. They don't understand. I don't mind. I, I like to see that, that athleticism and that beauty and that skill on display. But what are we doing? Terminating our praises 
or enjoying God, or enjoying those things, I should say, without reference to God. It is legitimate enjoyment of those things if we enjoy them in God. We terminate our enjoyment, our praises, our awe, our wonder, our, and so on, on the things, on the people, instead of on God. God, the God of glory, wants us to know him. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever he formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. So that every glory and every beauty in this world reflects him. But beside him, pales. Pales. They are not a drop next to God's ocean. Not a molehill next to God's mountain. Picture yourself standing before Mount Everest in absolute awe, the highest peak on the planet. And you're just, your eyes are popped, your jaws dropped, and you're just, you've never seen this thing except in photographs, and you stand before this, this mountain in awe. Now picture a man in front of you, between you and the mountain, his back turned to the mountain, and he's in equal awe. And he's like, I, I never thought that I would see the like. And you're about to agree with him until you look at him and realize he's not looking up at the mountain at all. His back is to the mountain, and he's looking at his feet. And you look down at his feet, and he's looking at a molehill. I never thought I would see this. Have you, have you seen this? This is breathtaking. What would you think of that guy? Preferring the glories of the earth to the glories of Jesus is worse than that. Because molehills to mountains are created things to created things. Both of them finite. But all glories pale next to Jesus, the creator, the eternal God, the infinite. So at the end of Exodus 33... Moses pleads, show me your glory. In chapter 34, the Lord descends and he gives to Moses a glimpse of the trailing edge of his glory, as we talked about last week. And I don't know if I mentioned it already. I don't think I did. We're, this is the, our third week in this series, and I know there's a few who haven't been here for that, and I'm, I'm sorry I don't have more time for review and so on, but I'll try the Lord gives to Moses this this glimpse of the trailing edge of his glory and Moses bows his head to the earth and he worships God. Even that, he can hardly bear the sight. We talked about what the glory of the Lord is. The glory of God is the revelation of God's perfections and the performance of them. And you see that in verses 6 and 7 as the Lord describes to Moses his perfections, and then in verse 7, the performance of those perfections, how he forgives all manner of sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, but will visit judgment on the, up to the fourth generation, down to the fourth generation. It's the beauty of God shining in who he is and what he does. That's the glory of God. 
But what we did last week, and we'll do it again here, is to uh, use God's own words on the matter. What he says is his glory. And he says at the end of Exodus 33 that his glory is the display of his goodness and the proclamation of his name. And so this is what he says, again from verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'll tell you honestly what I feel like this is a little bit, really with anything, any revelation of the awesomeness of God in the Old Testament, I feel like, I'll just go ahead and do this. If anybody wants to rig some kind of contraption where I can clip this back into my belt again, it would be useful. Anyway, I feel like the the time and the distance between us in the 21st century AD and Moses in the 15th century BC, it's like the sound of God's proclamation is muffled, like we are listening, the door just gave way, listening with our ears stuck to the door. You've done that. You've eavesdropped, right, on some conversation at some point when you were a kid wanting to hear what your parents were discussing about you. And you can hear something, but you wish you could hear better because the sound is muffled. And that's what I I feel like when we are listening in on the proclamation of God's name to Moses, like the sound is muffled. And it's the time and the distance between us and Moses. What would you find if you could open the door, Jesus. You open the door. The distance is closed. The vision becomes not physical, but plain to the eyes of faith. When you see Jesus, it's Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the goodness that God displayed to Moses and the fulfillment of the proclamation of his name. The light of the glory of God shines in and shines from the face of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to turn your attention to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. I'm still going to be referring to Exodus, but here we're going to bring our concentration to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is crucial for you to know if you are going to know the true Jesus. If you, if you don't want to settle for the Jesus that the, so much of the contemporary church is marketing today, who is being marketed from so many pulpits today, you want to know the true Jesus Christ, you need to know John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So many have called this the prologue to John's gospel. And the Bible says about Jesus that in him are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. And I just feel like so many treasures of wisdom and knowledge were dropped into these words, these 18 verses. In the few verses of John 1, 14 to 18, there are five elements that parallel five essential elements of the revelation we just read in Exodus 34. Five elements in John 1, 14 to 18, parallel five elements of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
Personally, I think that Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this is personal opinion, I think that Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7 is the greatest revelation from God to his people in the Old Testament era. But listen to me. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is not the final answer to the pleading and the praying of God's people, show us your glory. It's not the final answer. As awesome as it was, it's not the final answer. John 1, 14 to 18 was written so that God's people would know Jesus is. Jesus is the final answer to our plea. Lord, show us your glory. As hugely significant as it was back then, 3,500 years ago, that revelation. It is, in essence, just another sign along the way. Just another sign along the way. A huge sign, a breathtaking sign. But still, essentially, just another sign. Jesus is not just another sign. Jesus is the destination to which all of God's signs point. The destination, the goal, the end, the fulfillment, the true, the ultimate. It's Jesus. It's Christ. Now, do you know, I want to get it now into the the first couple elements that parallel in John 1, 14 to 18, two elements in Exodus 34. But let's talk a little bit more about Exodus. Do you know what the great concern of Exodus 25 to 40 is? It's the tabernacle. Exodus 25 to 31 concerns the instructions for the tabernacle. God says, Moses, you are going to follow the pattern. I show you right down to the last detail, and that's 25 to 31. 35 to 40 is the actual building and construction of the tabernacle. And in between, of course, you have Exodus 32 to 34. Exodus 32 to 34 is the record of the people of Israel's sin when they make this golden calf and, and hail the, the gods that delivered us from Egypt. That this, this sin that puts the whole thing into doubt. Everything that God says about his tabernacle is now put into doubt because of the rebellion of the people of God, that they would break the covenant that they had committed themselves to, to have no other gods before him, the one true God, Yahweh, the only God. And do you know what Moses' biggest fear is in Exodus 32 and 33? He is afraid that the nation won't get its tabernacle. That's his biggest fear. Even when God says, okay, I will not consume the nation completely. I'm not going to just start over with you. In fact, they will get the land that I have promised their ancestors. My angel will go before them. They will inherit that land. Moses said, that's not enough. That's not enough for me. I want the tabernacle. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the tabernacle is not just some fancy tent that makes a barren patch of desert a little less barren. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of the glory of God. When God is first giving his instructions to Moses 
about how to build it. He promises him in Exodus 5 verse 8 that he wants the people to donate all their, all their wares, all their goods, all their jewelry, different types of cloth and material and so on for the building of this thing because Exodus 25 8, I will dwell in their midst. They will build me the sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst. And now this whole thing, the presence of the glory of God with them is under threat. And that's Moses' fear. And so he says to God, please show me your glory. Show me your favor. Inside the tabernacle, there is a room called the most holy place. And it will house, not contain, not restrict, It will house the glory of God on earth. So this room called the most holy place is not just the most holy place of the three areas of the tabernacle. Most holy place, holy place, courtyard. It's the most holy place on the planet. Because here and here alone is the revelation of the light of the glory of God. And so even when God promises to be with his people, all, you know, he says, my angel will go and you'll have the land. You'll live and you'll have the land and so on. The the enemies will be driven out. Moses says, show me your glory. Show me that you are going to be with us. Show me that we are going to have a tabernacle. Show me your favor. And so at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle construction is complete. And this is what it says. Hear this. This is... This might sound like unnecessary information. It's not. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And here's where we see the first and second parallels to Jesus in John. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through the Word, and without the Word was not anything made that was made. And then John writes in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Quick side note. A sign of growing Christian maturity is growing wonder at Christmas. At the incarnation, God in the flesh. This is wonder of wonders. The word became flesh without ceasing to be God. The one son of God became one of us. And John says, and he dwelt among us. Now, I don't know if you're going to remember this, but you may recall from previous months that one of John's favorite words is the word meno, which means to abide, to dwell, to stay, to remain. And he just writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he could have used that word meno. Remember 1 John as we went through it, how many times it talks about God abiding in us and us in him? He doesn't use the word meno. He uses a very precise word that literally means this. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
That's the first parallel. John, by using this word, is deliberately, specifically, hearkening back to the Exodus 34, 6 and 7 revelation. And he is drawing parallels to show you the glory of God that was displayed there. That paramount vision of the glory of God in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. The word tabernacled among us. And you can't help but miss this the second obvious parallel. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father. Why does God call his son the word? It is something that I have talked about for a lot, but it's not something that I heard when I was young. I've gone over this many times with our youth and in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, and so on, and many times on Sunday mornings with you. I didn't understand it when I was a kid. When I was in seminary, I remember talking with a friend. I was, I was driving. He was to my right in this, this van. We are working, and we were talking about uh, another friend of ours who is also a student at the seminary and what it means that Jesus is the word of God. And he said, you know, this, this friend of ours said, he preached that it means that when you hold your Bible, the word of God, you are literally, <coughs> literally, there's a dangerous word, holding Jesus in your hand. And I said, that's stupid. And he said, why? I said, well, I, I don't really know. I don't know how to say it, but I know that is the, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Or just very stupid. What does it mean that Jesus is the Word? When God gives us the book on Himself, and I'm not saying literal book, well, I am and I'm not. I'm saying it figuratively and literally, I guess. The story concerns Jesus. When he gives us the book on himself, the story concerns Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Everything else is a reflection. Jesus is the radiance. He is, according to Colossians chapter 1, the image of the invisible God. So you remember his response to Philip when Philip said to him just before Jesus' arrest, Jesus, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And he said, have I been with you so long? And yet you don't know me, Philip. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the Word. Because Jesus makes God known to us. He discloses God. He narrates to us who God is. He is the message of God to humanity. I'm going to say this. There is no more glory of God that we will see ever than what we see in and through Jesus. And I don't know if I could, if I ever was mature enough in the past to, to make that statement. But Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. You see him, you see the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the Father's glory. I'm not trying to start a Jesus-only cult by no means. But think about this. When, when God speaks of his creation, he speaks of the handiwork of his Son. 
when God declares his wisdom and power to save, he speaks of the cross of his son. When he foretells the coming revelation of his judgment, he promises his sword-wielding son. When he speaks of the redemption of heaven and earth, and the reign of his kingdom, he speaks of the throne of his son. When he speaks of his love to you, the gift of his love, he speaks about his son. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, the radiance of the Father's glory, the word of God. So do you see? If you're going to see the true glory which all other glories and beauties reflect, but beside which they pale, if you're going to see the true glory, you must fix your eyes of faith for now, eyes of faith for now, on Jesus. Until that day when faith is turned to sight. When God promised Moses he would show Moses his glory, he said he would make all his goodness pass before him and he would proclaim his name. Jesus Jesus is not like, you know those uh, TV game shows with the, the models that are always showing things, like the price is right. They do this number, wouldn't I make a good one? <laughs> they, they're, they do this thing, and they're like, you know, look, it's so beautiful, you want this, bid on it, or guess how much it costs, or whatever. And they're showing something beautiful. Jesus is not doing this with God. He's not saying, look. Look at how beautiful he is. He's saying, look. He doesn't say, go. Go there and do this. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, understand these fine points of philosophy. He says, believe in me. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the glory. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't display merely. He is the display. He doesn't... Just give the word. He is the message. So he's, he's the prophet and the word. You understand? He's the word of God. He is the proclamation. He is the glory. So those are the first two clear parallels. He tabernacled among, among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I don't believe that there is anything that set the Old Testament saints to singing more than this specific word of the Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7 revelation. We're going to get to this in a few weeks as we go through the Psalms. And we were already looking at it today. Did you notice steadfast love and faithfulness over and over again? That's the Psalms. That revelation that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness put their singing to new heights. In Jesus, John says, there is a fullness that fulfills the revelation of his abundance. And there is a grace that fulfills the revelation of steadfast love and truth that fulfills the revelation to faithfulness. And that might not initially on the surface make sense to you. And I don't have time to make the case completely. I will do that. 
I'll just have to ask you if you are doubting to suspend disbelief for now, but maybe you can see it. Maybe it does make sense to you. But I'm telling you, God's abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness proclaimed to Moses is fulfilled ultimately and displayed to the world. It's displayed to you and me in Jesus, His Son, the Word of God from heaven. I I hope, let me just say this quickly, I hope this does not seem obscure to you theoretical or you know fine points of theology or something like that because it's not we're talking about what i think and you would at least agree i think that it's one of we're talking about the main revelation of god in the old testament about who he is that made difference to the people of God over years, they, they ran with it, they sang it, they, they prophesied based on it and promised and, and so on. All of that. John showing us in one of these most crucial passages in the New Testament about Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment. That's not obscure. That's not just a fine point of theology that we don't need to talk about. It is, it is the wealth of God's wisdom and knowledge being revealed in Christ, we need to see. Is it hard work? Do you need to, yeah, you need to dig. That's, but that's good. That's good. It's good for us. It's not obscure. If you want to see Christ, if you want to see the glory of Christ, you need to understand the word of Christ. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's move to verse 16. And from his fullness, Well, I didn't read 15, so I'll read that too. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That is, he is before me because he's before me. He means he is over me, before me, because he was eternally before me. He is infinitely above me because he was eternally before me. And from his fullness, it says in 16, we have all received grace upon grace. I'll tell you why this is not obscure. Because it's not just information for your head. And it's not just a sight for spiritual eyes. This is is for your life. It's for the taking. It's for the receiving. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is something for you to lay hold of. God who abounds in steadfast love to you is full of grace to you in Jesus. Now there's two more parallel elements. Let's look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the number one parallel is he tabernacled among us. Number two parallel is that we have Seen in him glory. And number three is that he is full of grace and truth corresponding to the abundance of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Now in verse 17, the Apostle John makes a very clear connection to Moses and he shows us how Jesus is absolutely superior. The law itself is not bad. Moses made that, or Paul made that very clear in Romans 7. He said the law is good, but grace and truth in Jesus are better. Because we could never come to God through the law. We can't. As George, George Whitfield once said, we could, as, we could as soon ascend to God by the law as we could climb to the moon on a rope of sand. 
So what happens when the law exposes your sinfulness? What, what, what did the Old Testament saints do, do when they realized they're, they're, they're evil within their hearts? They appealed to the steadfast love of God, which again is fulfilled in the grace of Jesus. They appealed to God's steadfast love. Let me give you an example from Psalm chapter 5. This is David writing. David says, now listen to how this escalates. It goes from God not delighting in sin to God abhorring the sinner. Okay? Listen, hear this escalation. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But, there's the gospel word. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh, embodied. The steadfast love of the Lord that's lavished on sinners. Finally, in verse 18. And I'm using finally, like sometimes Paul uses finally, when he says, Finally, and then goes on for a good bit more. Verse 18. (laughs) No one has ever seen God. What did God say to Moses at the end of Exodus 33? He said, you will not see my face because no man shall see my face and live. Now, very clearly, John, hearkening back to that, echoes it. He says, no one has ever seen God. But there's this word. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I'll just say this about that before we finish talking about the cross. Moses saw the back part. The, the trailing edge of the glory of God. And what did he do? He hid his face in the dust. Jesus does not hide his face from the glory of God. He is the face of the glory of God. That's our God. Last week I left you with the counsel that if you're, you're going to see God, you need to read the Gospels. Have you ever just had this urge within you to read the Gospels? It just like, maybe it comes like this. I, I want to know my God. I need to read Matthew. I, I want to read Mark, Luke, John. If you're going to see the glory of your God in the face of Jesus Christ, you need to read those eyewitness accounts of Him, of who He is and the things that He did. And especially, You need to concentrate on that dark Thursday and Friday and that very gloomy Saturday 2,000 years ago before the brilliance of Sunday morning broke in. You need to concentrate your attention on the hour for which Jesus had come into the world because Jesus made it very plain. 
that it's in that hour and it's in his death overturning all instinct and preconception of man. It's in that hour in which God makes his glory most known. It is the climactic display of God's beautiful beautiful perfections and the performance of them. It's in the cross. I could show you this with many passages in John's Gospel. I'm just going to have you turn to one real quick. John chapter 12. So if you want to behold the glory of your God, look upon the cross of His Son. John 12, verses 23 and 24. Now, through John's Gospel, Jesus escapes arrest and stoning and so on because it keeps on saying His hour had not yet come. His hour for what? His hour for suffering and His hour for death. So when John 12, 23, verse 24 comes, we have these words of Jesus. The hour has come. The hour for what? The hour for His suffering. The hour for His substitutionary death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He talks about, here's my hour to be glorified. What does Judas expect? Okay, here's the kingdom. This is what I've been waiting for. The power. The overthrow of Rome. I mean, even the other disciples expected that, but Judas' heart was really there. But Jesus doesn't talk about the overthrow of Rome, taking a seat on the throne. He talks about death. He talks about death. Look down at verses 32 and 33. These are his words again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, John adds, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I wish I had time, really more time for this point, but I don't. That the Son of Man will be lifted up has a clear double meaning. It has a a literal meaning and has a figurative meaning. The literal meaning should have been obvious to the people when Jesus said he was going to be lifted up as in John chapter 3 when he talked about you know, Moses lifting up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, that kind of thing. That lifted up, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his suffering. John says so. He was showing by what kind of death he was going to be di- going to die. I'll be lifted up. I am going to be crucified. But the figurative meaning is that being lifted up, he will be on display. The perfections of God and the performance of of them will be on display for the world to behold. And through that, then, Jesus will draw a people to Himself. And that's what glory is for. That's what the beauty of God radiates for. To draw us in. To leave us worshiping. And to bring us, we see in Jesus, to reconciliation with God. So Jesus was saying that in being lifted up upon the cross, His glory would be uniquely seen. It's in the cross that we see Him for who He is. And through this enfleshing of glory, we will be drawn to Him. 
The Lord, the Lord, He is the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. This is the glory of God, the display of His goodness, the proclamation of His name. Jesus is the fulfillment. The cross is the synthesis of what Jonathan Edwards called excellencies so diverse that they would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Lion and lamb. Priest and sacrifice. Prophet and word. King. And in that very true sense, the servant of all humanity. It's in the cross that we see that. It's in the cross. All of those things come together. The perfections and the performance of those perfections of God in the cross. Where do you go to satisfy your glory, hunger, and quench your glory, thirst? If you go to the world, if you settle on the world, you are trading oceans for a drop, mountains for molehills. The truth of God and the glory of God for a lie, for images. The worship of the Creator for that of the creature. Set your eyes on Jesus. Everyone in this room, set your eyes on Jesus. What are you going to do with this? Please do something. Don't let this just roll around in your head. Read the Word. Meditate on the Word. Get it in your heart. Let your eyes, let your mind dig deep. Pray God would illuminate you by the power of the Spirit so that you could see Jesus. Behold your God in the face of His Son. Let's pray. My Father, give us eyes to see. I pray, Father, that Your Word that we just keep repeating and repeating and repeating, would settle in our minds. We just have it in our memories. And from there, it would sink into our hearts. So that even when we're not hearing the preaching of the Word, yet we are meditating on the revelation of your glory in the face of your Son. And our hearts and our thoughts are being brought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus so that fears would be stilled, so that anxieties be taken away, so that with courage we take up the cross and deny ourselves and follow after Jesus, faithful all the way to glory, so that we please you Have your smile upon our lives. Bring you glory and make you known. In Jesus I pray, amen.